February and March 2021, the Christian Evidence Society ran a series of five sessions. We at Still Unbelievable attended these. This second episode features Andrew, Matthew and Darren discussing the third session, which was Joel Edwards talking about race. The first episode covered Jonathan Aiken speaking about truth and Gillian Strain talking about healing. The next episode will cover Mike Hume talking about climate and Rowan Williams talking about prayer and spirituality. Hello guys and we're back again. This time we're back up to three. Andrew has joined us again. So this is week three of the Christian Evidence Society series of question and answer sessions on race and it's by Joel Edwards CBE, a gentleman who I thought was considered in what he said and very intelligent in what he said certainly on on the matters of import which is the the matters of race the wonderful irony of this is this is three white guys talking about a black guy talking about race and racism shall we just move past all the uncomfortable feelings that that might bring up and just talk about what it was that we heard what we agree with what we have a little bit of difficulty with and go through some of the questions thank you both for joining me again i'm going to say tuesday evenings i know it's not evening for you two but who cares i'm in charge what are your thoughts i think i liked him joel edwards uh, as you said earlier he seemed to be very considered very thoughtful he seemed to sort of echo a lot of the same sentiments that I've heard from a lot of uh, Black community in the Black Lives Matter, so he seems to be fairly mainstream about the whole thing, which I was sort of worried that they were going to do some sort of character, given its uh, Christian take on it. But And, you know, I live in the United States, so that's not uncommon to happen. Yeah, overall, it's, it seemed fairly well put together. I thought so, too, but I was aware from the beginning, just how uncomfortable the conversation was. So there, there was a lot of, uh, can we define some terms up front? What are, you, what are you comfortable with? And I think that for me, we are in a time where uh, we're, we're supposed to be quite an enlightened age, right? 2021. And it was uh, surprising to me just how much work had to be done just to have the conversation. Not surprising in the sense that I wasn't aware of it, but surprising because we are supposed to be a society by now that's better than the warm up that had to happen in the conversation. This is 2021 and Christianity was supposed to have been the thing to take us out of this space, right? The, the, the Christianity was supposed to rescue us from, from racism by now, and it hasn't. And in fact, I will ask Matthew to include in the show notes an article uh, over on NPR about just how ensconced in Christianity today's racism is in the United States. White evangelical Protestants are over 70% more likely to be racist, according to this article. Mainline Protestants and Catholics, even those in the Northeast, are over 60% more likely to express racist views think, and, and to not recognize racist problems like systemic racism in the United States. And by the way, those of us white who don't have a religion, we don't do that much better. We're still over 50%, uh, somewhere around 52% likely to express racist views and to not recognize systemic racism. And this even runs down into the black community. 
when surveyed, uh, something like 22% of black people express some level of, of racism and bias. So Christianity, far from being that thing that is rescuing us from racism, is the stronghold of racism in the United States. And I have to point that out here if we are going to have an honest conversation about the Christian Evidence Society putting on a conversation about racism. Yes, I think there's a very important distinction to make here in a perception difference as well, because what you've just said, I have no difficulty whatsoever believing. But if you were to rephrase what you just said, but instead of saying here in America, you said here in the UK, I would have a much harder time believing you. And I think that is one of the stark differences between our two nations. And I think for context, the conversation that we've just listened to was very UK centric and the, the cultural background was very UK centric. And I say that knowing that both of you guys are the wrong side of the pond, so to speak. But it does give us a picture of the two very different versions of Christianity that we are used to and the connection between that and racism because you have just uh, verbalized something which it, which matches my impression of evangelical christianity in america which is that it does go hand in hand with racism that doesn't mean every white evangelical is racist but certainly you will find a bigger pocket of racists in white evangelicalism than elsewhere here in the uk I genuinely would not expect that same pattern to happen. I would be genuinely surprised if it was. The people that I would expect to be racists might exhibit some of the same or similar personalities to what we would re consider white evangelicalism in America, but I would not expect those people to be Christians. I just expect them to be dicks. Yeah, they would be horrible people, but I would not always expect those people to be Christians. It would not be a character trait that I would automatically assign to them, whereas you might to a similar person over in America. And I think that's quite a crucial difference between the way our two countries view Christians and our experiences of Christians. Yeah, I think part of the issue is going to be that uh, white nationalism. See, the, uh, the Christian right in the U.S. for those that aren't actually in the U.S. has aligned itself with the Republican Party, and they've also aligned themselves with white nationalists, part of the Republican Party, which is a very conservative, very racist part of our country. And if you're making that kind of comparison, it, you might want to extend that out to include how politics and uh, white nationalism sort of influence both, because I, I'm betting you'll find that Christian evangelical is much more likely to be white nationalist and Republican in this country. And it might be interesting to see if there's an equivalent for that as well. I'm wondering about conservative evangelicals and Brexit as a presidents, because white nationalism certainly seemed to be a, a big component of Brexit, or at least that was my impression. Matthew, is that? Um... I would, yes, I, I would imagine that in terms of that there'll be a much higher proportion of Brexiters than there would be what I would call racists. I hope you're right, and I hope that the UK is doing better than the US. So it was interesting, too, to see how often the United States came up in regard to racism and the fight against racism. So Black Lives Matter was mentioned pretty often in this particular chat, and uh, you know, Donald Trump came up. American racism has quite a deep reach around the world. 
Yeah, well, I'm guessing it's going to be probably about the same because it all stems from our brain makeup. Um, there's a lot of research going on about a lot of the sub-processes that are, we do unconsciously. Mm-hmm. And because we were evolved to be tribal in nature, we have a very strong disgust mechanism for anything other. So in a white country, that's going to be against anyone that's not white. I'm guessing in a black country, that's going to be against anyone who's not black and same with Asian and all the other countries. So, right, What I'd like to do is run through some of the bullet points that we came up through the conversation. And I'd like to pick out some of the points that made the most impact with me right at the very beginning when you, you mentioned that they were talking about definitions and descriptors, Andrew, there was a, a point here that, that Joel made, which I pro- it's one of those things that I probably always knew subconsciously, but because I'm white, it never really surfaces up to the front. I never have to consciously think about it. But Joel made the comment that a lot of the descriptors of race are often a descriptor as opposite to white. Uh, did you guys pick up on that and how did, did. you guys respond to, to that sentence? I did pick up on it. I have to say that it was a surprising moment for me because I actually thought, you know, that's exactly right. And not only is it exactly right, but I am a guilty party. That's all I can do with it is uh, say, yeah, that sounds right. And I'm a guilty party. The unsaid implication there is if everything is seen as the opposite to white, that de facto makes white the the dominant race. And if you're trying to live in a world where everybody is seen as equal, but you've got one race that everybody is seen opposite to, you're, you've got a baked in imbalance there, which is going to be hard to overcome. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I, that's why I said I'm guilty. I'm guilty of the language that perpetuates this problem. And the problem runs deep enough that I had to just acknowledge that this is a thing I do. It is a sort of racist tendency that I have and am not even very aware of it. Yeah, and I think the thing that went through my mind is I don't care about arguing over whether or not that sentence is true or even arguing about whether we go to the minutiae of analyzing the levels with which different words may or may not be true in that context. I think if somebody who is non-white feels that way, then the words that we're using are, or, and the attitudes that we hold are already making them, putting them in a position where they may feel inferior or already do feel inferior or already do feel put upon. And regardless of whether or not we agree with that sentence, if the person that we're talking with has a different skin colour to us and is coming from a position where they feel they're walking uphill already, then there is a problem regardless of how we feel about the words being used. So uh, that was my response to that. There was a little bit of a surprise and it was, okay, if that's how he feels, then, then I, as a white person, it's probably my job to do something about that when I'm in conversation with black people or other people who are non-white. Yeah, I think I'm sort of in the same position. Um, I'm not entirely sure that the language makes it a problem, but I guess if they are, it's producing those kind of feelings, then obviously it is. So, um, 
if we want to be inclusive, then we have to make an effort to actually be inclusive. Yes. And I, I think this is probably just one of those side effects of white privilege that me as a white person simply never sees. Yeah. The other thing that stood out to me was his anecdote about his two friends as a child, one black one and one white one. And he was always in and out of the house of his black friend, but he never went into the house of his white friend. And I thought that was quite powerful as well. And that sort of experience growing up, because that's not a one-off experience, that is a constant experience for somebody growing up. It is always there and it clearly stays with you for a very long time. And he's probably not the only black person with that as an anecdote from their childhood. And I imagine that that kind of experience growing up probably just probably leaves a raw numbness. I don't even know what the right word to use is to describe that. I, but what, whatever feeling that leaves with you for the rest of your life, it can't be pleasant. Yeah, I think the uh, you know, I never really internalized. You know, I, I intellectually I sort of understood that there was a difference and that the, uh, black people had a lot of problems growing up in a what are we like? 95 80% white uh, country and it didn't really really hit home for me until I saw the difference between the um uh, re- the response of black lives matter in um in the capital when they were doing their uh marches versus the response that the white insurrectionists got mm-hmm. when they were in the capital I don't know if you've seen the pictures but with the black Li- yeah, lives I've... matter protests uh, there was no real uh, chatter of uh, violence or anything else, but you saw a National Guard mm. in full riot gear and weapons and everything lined up everywhere to to protect things. And then with the white nationalist insurrection that we just recently had, there was tons of chatter of bombs being placed, violence with guns and everything. And it took them three hours after the raid on the White House started before they were even able to get things rolling to get yeah. National Guard right. out. Just to retract for the listeners, this is all about racism. This is about how white people in the United States are treated differently than black people. And Matthew, I'm sure that you're ready to wrangle us in and, and move us forward. So. Yes, I'm going to change gear somewhat. And I'm going to be topical as well, because we're recording this on the 9th of March, which is one day, two days <laughs> after that interview. Mm-hmm. And so there was reference made to Meghan Markle and the phrase she used of being, there being a difference between being rude and being racist. And I have no issue whatsoever with that. The conversation about that was part of a bigger conversation about low level racism being a constant background. In fact, the word radiation was used in reference to a constant of racism and this conversations like this about racism I just have to be straight up and honest and say while I have no issue believing it when black people and others talk about racism like this because I'm white I have no concept of what it's like that that experience is something that I cannot engage with because I have no experience of it and I simply do not know what it feels like and I simply do not know 
what it's like to experience that. So I have to acknowledge that. But what was said again here, this is one of the points which had an impact on me where they were talking about this constant background radiation of low level racism, which is different from people being rude. Joel talked about having being black meant having to be constantly discerning about the person that you're talking to or the people that you're interacting with, reading their language, reading their poise to see whether they're just having a bad day and they've just been a bit gruff or whether actually their attitude is one that's just exuding this low level radiation of constant racism. My takeaway from him describing it was my God, that must be so emotionally draining to have to be like that constantly. And I'm pretty sure I still don't get it. But it it made it made my eyes tingle just thinking what it must be like to have to be like that constantly. I wonder if it's sort of like um, when you're working a nine to five and you're in a really bad and politics at your job is really bad. We're constantly on alert and trying to be polite because if you piss off your boss, then you're going to end up having to, you're going to lose out on promotion and, and other perks you get for being in the good graces of your boss. Yeah, I can imagine that that's possibly a way of helping to understand it. It's, but it's the fact that it's like that every day. You go home, you sleep, you get up, and it's exactly the same from the second you arrive at work again or whatever place it is. Matthew, I was hoping you could pull me back from the edge on part of this. It wasn't mentioned specifically in this chat, but we've all seen or read parts of this interview. I did not see it all. I didn't see it live. I I've, I've it. not watched it. I've tried to avoid as much news on it as possible here in the UK, our attitude towards the royal family is probably a little bit more complex than your attitudes towards the, the royal family is. I have heard the race comments being pulled out specifically regarding unborn Archie, which I'm quite disgusted That's, by. Uh, that is exactly I, beyond my that, too. Yeah, beyond that, I know very little about what was said. So I was hoping you'd pull me back from the edge specifically related to Archie. So we in the US don't have a sense of how these things work in, in the UK, right? But one of the accusations is that protection, and I'm, I'm presuming that means civil service protection, that was not going to be extended to Archie, and, and even more, uh, he was not going to be granted the title of prince. And I'm trying to figure out whether in this case that is actually an anomaly or if because Harry is, I don't know, something like sixth in the line of succession, it would have been refused to any child of Harry because like at the seventh level or whatever, you just don't do it anymore. And so is this blatant racism the way it looks? Because it, it looked to me like nothing but blatant racism. Or is there something here that Americans just don't understand? I don't know enough to be able to comment is... The short answer, I think it's more complicated than certainly about the title of Prince. I think it's far more complicated than that. The way to validate and to fact check what's going on is you've got cousins of William and Harry check their children and see if their children have got a title. And I can't remember if either of them have got any children. This is how much interest I take in, in our royal family. Check the children of the cousins of William and Harry and see if their children have got titles. 
and if their children haven't got titles either then there's probably less of a case but if their children have got titles then I think there's a case. I was also surprised to hear that Megan was refused the ability to see a psychologist or psychiatrist to have mental health treatment through the palace because she wasn't a paid royal. Maybe that is not blatant racism, but it was a surprising note that she was told that she couldn't have access to these sort of HR resources because she wasn't uh, a paid royal and that she would have to seek mental health treatment on her own. And then apparently she was told, and by the way, you can't uh, you can't go to a private therapist. Uh, I don't know that that is racism, but it was certainly shocking. I don't know anything about that story. Leaving the racism card face down on the table for the moment, it's that on its own is a terrible thing, given what we know about Diana and given what we know about certainly William and Kate being high profile advocates of mental health here in the UK. So Mm. it's really quite shocking that that stance was taken. I suspect that that stance was taken by somebody within the royal household but not a royal family member one of the the staff members one of the staff members who and so again i'm guessing here because i simply don't know but i would imagine that there are senior staff members who actually have power over what certain members of the royal family do they can say what they are and are not entitled to and control their calendars and to a certain extent control their movements. And I suspect that it was probably one of those. And this person is either so entrenched, they simply cannot see the world outside of their bubble, or they just took their power too far and didn't apply any common sense. But either way, it's a misstep by that individual. They were, from what I've read during this interview, uh, I guess it was actually a quite a long in-depth interview because it was, I, I guess, aired over several segments. I, I, like I said, I haven't seen it, so, but I have read a little bit about it. And apparently Harry and Meghan lay very little blame at the feet of the Queen, right? And they're hoping to uh, salvage something out of this, I guess. We'll have to see how that goes. You know, certainly all eyes are on how this unfolds at this point. But I do have a problem with Harry and Meghan. And so now I'm going to run dangerously close to being accused of racism. But this is something I have to say. They have talked about getting back to basics where they live. And in fact, apparently, and I sort of agree with one of the British tabloids here. And I, I am I am loath to agree uh, with tabloids. But if the news is right, they're uh, raising chickens, which I don't have a problem with. Raise anything you want in, in your home. But to suggest that Harry and Meghan raising chickens is anything like having to raise chickens for other reasons in the United States is crazy. They, they live in a mansion worth $14 million plus. While I absolutely encourage them to live their lives as, as close to whatever ideal they want as they can, Uh, to raise their children knowing where their food comes, to raise their children with the best possible ethics, if you think raising chickens is is ethical. I just think there are things where you can claim to see life like the average person where you just can't. 
Donald Trump is a privileged white guy. And it's a, it's a large part of his unprivileged base that votes for him. And while I am absolutely positive, Harry and Meghan experienced things that were awful for them. Um, there are some ways in which they can't identify with me. And there are some ways in which I can never identify with them. You're not a commoner if you've got a $14 million house. That's true. And so uh, there's there's that. Uh, there's that bit. Uh, hopefully that's not racism. Uh, hopefully it's a commentary on economic privilege. And their level of economic privilege is so far beyond what we will ever experience that I don't think they do live life with the same kinds of concerns that I have. Do I send my daughter to private school? And what does that do to my family finances? They don't have that concern. Their children will grow up with privilege that none of our children can have in the same way. They don't have an insecure future. Have they suffered? I am absolutely positive that they have. But their future is not insecure, not like the rest of us can experience. But the takeaway from that is, from what I understand of what's been said, that it isn't an insulator from the negative effects of racism. I, to which I completely agree. I completely agree. There are just some places where we can't identify. We can all identify over, well, yeah. maybe we can't all identify over racism. I mean, that's part of the problem here, right? To, to what extent is it possible for those of us that don't experience racism to be able to understand racism in the same way Harry and Megan can't understand what it means to lead an average life. I've got one more thing I want to pull out from the conversation that we listened to. I want to skip over the bits about Black Lives Matter and about institutional racism. These are subjects that we've done over with our friends on Skeptics and Seekers, and there's lots of material out there. There's just one more piece that I want to pick out from the conversation was the question towards the end of the conversation was, what does racism feel like? And this was a question that gave quite a large pause from Joel. I watched his face uh, as he paused. I don't know if he saw the question coming. I don't know if he was prepared for the question, but that's irrelevant. He paused for quite some time before answering that. And he gave a few sentences of description uh, of what it could be like for racism to feel like. And again, as a white person speaking, I don't know what these sentences really feel like, what these emotions really feel like. I think they help to give an example of the emotional draining that constant racism is, but I don't think they go adequately close. Here are the answers that, that Joel gave to the question, what does racism feel like? He said, your value as a human is being expunged. Your dignity is being cancelled by another. You are being othered to the extent that you are expected to look up at your oppressor. And your soul is being desecrated. These are all quite strong descriptive sentences. But I still don't think they give an adequate expression of 
what it is like to feel racism. So I'm going to leave that there and I'm not going to try to explain any further. Do you two have any thoughts? No, I don't. No, I think it's probably best to leave it there. I was struck by that moment as well. I thought probably that he did not have advanced warning of that question uh, and that he handled it with the sort of aplomb that I admired. <laughs> so, Yes, it, it basically told you the kind of genuine character that Joel has, I think. Right, so on to the questions. The first question asked, submitted by myself, actually. Well, it is the type of question that I suspect that I wasn't the only person to ask this question, but that wasn't told. We we didn't learn that multiple people had answered this question. I'm just guessing that multiple multiple people asked this question. But the question I submitted was, is it racist to portray Jesus as white? And the the answer was that it is a product of irresponsible behaviour and the result is racism so he said that it's he said several things to describe how poorly thought out it is to portray jesus as white he didn't say that the expression itself is explicitly racist but he used a lot of words that get close to that but he did effectively imply that it's unthinking possibly even uneducated and unthoughtful and that the result of doing that and the constant portrayal of jesus of white the result of that is effectively racism I definitely see where he's coming from on that. I'd never really thought about it in those terms, but I could definitely see how it would be portrayed in those terms. I always thought it was just always stupid to portray Jesus as white. <laughs> and then there's some sects of Christianity that really insist that he was white. Yeah, blonde hair, blue eyes and everything, yeah. Yeah. I'll just so say I this. Just, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to finish off with saying, well, if you can believe that, you know, talking donkeys and talking snakes exist, then a white Jesus isn't really that much of a stretch in the middle of the Middle East, right? No. Living in the, the Southeast United States, probably not a, uh, you know, a, a great way to, to do your statistical comparison here, but I've been in a lot of churches, Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, Catholic, Church of Christ, Assembly of God, Church of God. The, the list goes on and on and on been in lots of churches uh, and I've been in churches from from Washington DC to Florida and Florida to Texas here's what I've never seen I've never seen an olive complected Jesus in a white church not once I'm not saying it doesn't exist don't don't misunderstand me but I've never seen an olive complected Jesus in a white church Oh, yeah. There's a lot of white Christians that'll <laughs> they'll yell and scream and everything if you suggest that Jesus wasn't white. Yeah. I don't even know if olive complected is, you know, so think about the skin tone of people from the Middle East, whatever you call that. I, I may not, <laughs> might not be the right descriptor. Whatever that skin tone is, I've never seen it in a white church on a Jesus statue, ever. I have I can't even remember when I first internalized the knowledge that Jesus can't have been white. It certainly wasn't as a child growing up in the missionary culture in Zambia. It certainly wasn't as a teenager both in Zambia and in the UK. 
maybe it was in my 20s, maybe it was in my 30s. I genuinely cannot remember. But it was certainly as an adult that that first knowledge was internalized and considered. So I'll just, I grew up thinking Jesus was white. That's just, <laughs> just how it was. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I'm not going to go through all the questions. There was one about can the church bring healing for racial injustices from the past? That was a good question. And the short answer was yes. But the longer answer was the church needs to acknowledge its complicity in some of those racial injustices, certainly those that it's had some involvement in or even non-involvement in resolving. And I thought that was a a good answer. And I think that's a good point that that needs to be done. I don't know what the bigger story is behind acknowledging complicity, but I guess that will be situationally appropriate. Yeah, actually, Christians have a real hard time with that. Uh, because they'll uh, talk about Christian leaders being the ones that helped with the anti-slave movement, but they always seem to forget that the people that were pro-slavery were all Christian leaders, Christian plantation owners, and they were using the Bible to justify slavery um so and even to guide how the laws were made around slavery and so i think if he can convince more christians that they need to understand the complicity of their religion in in the past then that would be a huge step forward yeah and i think there's another bigger point also to consider over the inverted commas victory over slavery slave owners got financially recompensed when their slaves were freed. The UK government took out such a huge debt to financially reimburse those people who apparently lost out by losing all their slaves. So it took more than 100 years to pay back the debts. I think that information is available online for people to fact check. Yeah, so the people who were the slavers, even when they're on a losing battle, they had sufficient clout that they were able to demand significant... uh, reimbursement from the government for removing them from owning slaves. Yeah, I don't think because we had the war to, you know, we actually had to fight a war against the Christians to stop them from owning slaves. <laughs> I don't think we had that problem in in the States. I don't think the government was even in a position to be able to do that even had they wanted to. You they both sort just of justified a good reason for civil war. <laughs> <laughs> You've both sort of touched on reparations. Christians can, before I get to reparations, Christians can always claim that they are on the moral side of right because there is no issue, as far as I can tell, that Christians don't span the gambit on. Pick pick any issue, abortion, health care, adoption, racism, government. Economics. I don't know that it is possible to have a position statement against which Christians don't run the entire spectrum of possible pro and con positions against. And so for Christians to now come around and say, oh, well, we were the ones that wanted to end slavery is a complete mockery when slave owners took their slaves to church. I think that's just a mentality of the Christian. They need to take credit for absolutely everything from the invention of hospitals, which they 
didn't do to abolition of slavery. And I've heard it said that uh, we've won the fight for LGBT rights when the Christians start taking credit for it. Yeah. If Christian churches want to get together and pass around the collection plate and actually do something substantial to heal racial divide, like contributing to reparations, then at that point, we've got a real conversation. I don't know how I feel about reparations, but reparations aren't the worst idea in the world. I don't know if it will actually solve the problem that we want to solve. But go ahead, Darren. You've got a thought. I'll finish that when you're done. I was just going to say, I guess it depends on what you mean by reparations. If you mean just like a money payout, then I don't think that's necessarily a good idea. But if you mean working to stamp out the systemic discrimination that exists in our laws because of we started out as a slave nation, then I think that's probably worth doing. Right. So I'm specifically thinking of money reparations. We need to deal with systemic racism in our laws, whether we offer monetary reparations or not. So I think that's a fight we've got to fight. But if churches want to get together and simply acknowledge that they own slaves and they want to offer some kind of reparations, monetary reparations are on the table right now. It's a big conversation, but I'll tell you what you won't see. Whether the U.S. government does anything about cash reparations, you're not going to see a church contribute. And so I don't really want to hear about it. I really don't. Right now, Christian churches are a stronghold of racism. See the show notes. And I don't think churches are the answer. They're still the problem. What is going to turn them into the answer? David Smalley likes to say that um, the better a Christian is, the more they ignore their religion. And <laughs> that's right. Maybe that's the answer. We have to guide the Christians to start ignoring their Bible and their religion so that they can be good people. I will cheer the day that we can put down this mic and never record it and they're still unbelievable. So, Darren, you get the first bite of the next one because you know what's coming. Just for context, they were talking about people misusing the uh, Bible. And my question is: was, if the Bible is being misused for slavery, then why is there exact instructions on how to treat slaves, including how much to beat them? When they answer that question, they're like, oh, well, I don't know of any places in the Bible where it says to beat your slave. Right. Both of them. Both, both surprised me, that Christians. Is. Yeah. yeah, and apparently the guy, uh, Joel, apparently he's got a doctorate in theology in the Bible. And You'd think Exodus 21 would have come up, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah this was the low point in, in the whole thing for me, yeah, this bit. It, it completely surprised me. Oh, it didn't me. Whenever you talk about slavery or anything in the Bible, because Christians always want to take credit for everything. They can't know that this stuff is in their Bible. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. And when uh, I actually posted the link and they re read it out, the Joel wasn't surprised it was there, even though he said he said that he just gave some lame excuse of, oh, I thought we were talking about the New Testament, which... Oh, I was... New... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I didn't understand that comment at all. I didn't so, even know why he said it. 
Oh, he's so, just trying to cover himself. I'll tell you what I was offended by. And and what actually made me laugh out loud as well, I was glad that they put the universal mute on these Zoom chats because I, the thing that made me laugh out loud was Joel eventually comes back and says, oh, and, and you know, by the way, uh, I thought we were talking about the New Testament, but, uh, but you know, uh, even in the Old Testament, that just, you know, the Jews were still better. You know, we're, we're still better than those other so those other slave owning societies that I just right, which actually is isn't even correct either. <laughs> Slavery actually became worse under the Abrahamic religions, not better. If you want to know whether the Bible actually stands against owning people, I'll make it easy for you. Any listener, you can end this conversation today by writing in with the one verse in the Bible, anywhere. You can include the Apocrypha. Just find me the one verse that says, thou shalt not own another human being. Yep. We can be done. I know. I know. They, they, uh, you were put to death for eating shellfish or picking up sticks on God's favorite day, but owning other people? Eh. Okay, you can do that as long as you don't beat them until they die the same day. Yeah, I mean, we can, it's not it's not hard. So so you offered Exodus 21, and that was that was exactly right because it gives it gives instructions about owning slaves, and and I thought that I would just go a step further with not implicit racism in the Old Testament. That was pretty explicit. It, it yeah. Right. So I wanted to. I, so Exodus 21 is explicit, but I wanted to go further because you offered Exodus 21 and ask Matthew to read a couple of verses from Leviticus 25. So, Matthew, if you have that. I do. Um, yes. So you want Leviticus 25, 39 to 43 were the verses you gave me. Yes, that is correct. Right. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you. Do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be released and they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors. Because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. They are not to be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. So I want to start at the bottom. Do not rule over them ruthlessly. So do, do I have to do, do I just have to point out the implication? It, is it is it not pretty clear that slavery even then, if, you know, if, you, if you're going to if you take the position that this was actually going on at the time, there's real history here. Do, do I have to point out that ruling ruthlessly must have been part of the culture? Otherwise, the last phrase doesn't make any sense. Yeah, because the uh, and it was only the Jewish uh, servants that you couldn't rule ruthlessly. It wasn't all the right. other slaves that you owned. Right. If those other poor slobs that aren't Jews happen to fall into your circle of influence, you can rule over them any damned way you want. 
But if it's a Jew, not only can you not rule over them ruthlessly, you must treat them as if you hired them, pay them a fair wage, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, and by the way, once you reach the year of Jubilee, they have a get out of jail free card, one that you can be absolutely positive was not extended to slaves who were not Jews. Or and female Jewish of, slaves. Or female, uh, yeah, oh, so you're going to get, okay. And, and by the way, if you think I'm wrong, send in the verse. We can have a conversation. So I just, so I'm not trying to one up Exodus 21, Darren. I just wanted to, to point out that Exodus 21 is not the only place in the Old Testament that talks about slavery. And it is not the only place in the Old Testament where it is pretty clear that slavery at that time was a brutal affair. Yeah. On the subject of this, and it ties back to something that was mentioned elsewhere in the conversation i can't remember exactly where it was put because i can't find it in my notes so presumably i didn't write it down there was a comment that joel made about the bible not having racial div divisions or not having having an attitude of racial uh, differentiation and this was added by uh, the enlightenment but when I read these verses about in the Old Testament about owning slaves, there's a very clear demarcation between the Jewish people and other nations. And that seems to be very racial in the way that it's read. The problem with these kind of statements that Christians make is that Yahweh started out as a Jewish war god. And the Jewish people were his people because he was their god. And all the other people may have had their own gods, but he was their God, and they were his special people. So you know whenever a Christian says, oh, God doesn't make a differentiation, you know they're wrong right from the start. I was a little surprised that there was an insistence that God was fair from the beginning. If there's ever been a case of an unfair God from the beginning, from the moment human beings are supposedly created, it is this Jehovah and this Jesus the Christ hanging out in heaven making human beings. Why? Because from the beginning, Eve is subservient to Adam. From the word go, she's made from his rib. God bothers to make Adam from the dust of the ground. And after Adam wanders around and he looks at all the animals and he can't find something uh, suitable for himself, then God says, oh, Adam, let me put you to sleep and take a rib and make somebody for you. That's the story. There's not a fair God in the book of Genesis. He's a creep that hates women from the beginning. And he's a creep that encourages racism and slavery shortly thereafter. Have you ever heard of the apocryphal stories uh, with Lilith? Oh, I, ooh, I love the Lilith stories. Uh, and I sort of like what's happened in fiction uh, with, with since, but go ahead. Well, originally, um, well, I don't know if they were original, but of course, I don't know if the whole Exodus was original either. Right. But uh, anyways, when they were 
had this big pile of stories uh, before the Bible was codified. There were the tales of Lilith, and she was made as a sort of a dirt golem like Adam was, but she got too uppity, so she was cast out. And that's why Eve was made from Adam's rib, was so that she would be subservient to him. And God has it in, this Jehovah character, has it in for women from then on. Here's an interesting exercise. Find the names of Adam and Eve's daughters. You can find their sons. They do have daughters. Find their names. Well, and that assumes that they had any. Genesis 4. Adam and Eve have daughters. Uh, but it's short. It's like this short, oh, and, and by the way, we realized we have to have like ovaries to keep the story going. So uh, they have Seth and some daughters. <laughs> well, you, you still have ovaries to keep the story going. Eve's there after all, right? Oh, my mother's my sister. Ooh. <laughs> well, that's what some sects of Christianity actually believe, is that uh, Eve was sort of the mother of all civilization. Yeah. That's why you get those apologetics that um, incest wasn't a problem when Adam and Eve were alive because they were created perfect by God. Matthew, what do you have to say here? You've been quiet through this whole thing. Yeah, I'm quite happy to listen to you two talk about about that. These are all thoughts that I've, I've gone through my head and um, hearing you two guys talk about it is just bring me back memories of the kinds of things I had to work through when I was a young Earth creationist trying to grapple with Adam and Eve being you know, the sole original pairs of humans. Yeah, and there's, there's no real place you can go there without ending up at some form of ick factor. Whichever route you take, there's an ick factor along the way. Yeah, and I'm, I'm long past the point where, I'm, where I can be bothered to talk about it because you know, <laughs> I've been there and thought it through way too much. Yeah, this is why on the boards I don't ever try to argue the Bible until they can demonstrate that there's actually a unicorn there. There's no point arguing which way is horn spirals. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> right. I'm just going to finish off with two more questions. One, I really liked the question and the reply to it, and then just one for a final thought. So the question was, should more be done to educate about British colonialism? And I think this is a good question. And the reason why I really liked this question was because I grew up in a former British colony. So this was something that strikes to an area where I actually have stronger feelings than most, I think, uh, on this. So the questions, and I agree with all of the answers that Joel gave to this. So, yes, now is a good time to do it. And it must be in the education system. And it must be more than just about the bad things that the British did. It must also be about the achievements and the legacy of the people that the British colonised. I thought all of those were really good points and I advocate every single one of them and feel very strongly about every single one of them. Yeah, we're having the same problem in the US right now. Uh, Trump uh, White House fought four years trying to get, if you'll forget the phrase, to whitewash our education system so that people weren't even taught about slavery. The 16-something, 1694 project or whatever they call it, crazy thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's happening here too. You know, much bad stuff in history, so don't teach it honestly. I, well, I could talk for ages on this, and I'd love to actually do a podcast episode uh, on this. So 
listeners, if you happen to be listening, if you've got a background that's a bit similar to mine, a Christian growing up in a former British colony, please get in touch. We would love to do a longer conversation on this. I could talk for a lot about it. I've got some quite strong opinions uh, about it. So please come on. I'm not going to waste any more time this evening talking about it, but please get in touch. Andrew and I would dearly love to have a longer conversation with somebody who's got that experience. And we don't mind whether you're Christian or anti-Christian. The the conversation will be interesting or just go in a different direction according to which one you are. So one of each would be great. But let's have that conversation. I think there is stacks there to unpick. Mm. So the final question, as Christians, we try to live the way Jesus taught us. How do we get along with those who live differently to us? And the answer was a very simple consider them equal to you i think that's a good way to end yes we can be quite polemic about the way that we talk but let's still consider ourselves equal to each other and disagree on that assumption disagree about the things that we disagree on on the assumption that we're equal to each other that's the thought i'm going to leave you with any final thoughts from you two um overall i thought it was sort of interesting they didn't really touch much on religion and racism. I think if they had a lot more of the issues would have popped up. But overall, it was okay. I want to loudly echo what you said a moment ago. If you're a Christian, you are equal to me. I'm not pretending. I'm not being hyperbolic. I'm not holding anything back. You are equal to me. You are human. You are as human as I am. And I will gladly meet you on the field of humanity anytime. The difference that we have is not that the three of us don't think that we're equal. The difference that I see most often, and if you're a Christian and you don't think this, I'm not talking to you. But the difference that I see the most often is that Christians think we're not equal because we're somehow broken. Our spirit detector doesn't find a God. I don't know how to solve that problem. No, I don't see a God. And if in your mind that makes us unequal, then we're not the ones with the problem. But three of us, we'll meet you on the field of humanity anytime. Matthew, I loudly agree with you. Thank you both. We talked longer than I expected to. We'll see how the next one goes. So the next one is Professor Mike Hume. He's going to be talking about climate and climate responsibility. He is a climatologist. I don't know if that's exactly what he is, but he certainly works in climate. He's an expert in climate. And for context, apparently he was one of the people who were unfortunate enough to have their emails released under the infamous climate gate uh, hacking and release of uh, a few years ago. Looking forward to that, looking forward to hearing what he says. His name does ring a bell, but I had no idea that he was a Christian. I am genuinely looking forward to what we're going to hear next week. See you next time. You have been listening to a podcast from Reason Press. Do you have any thoughts on what you've just heard? Do you have a topic that you would like us to cover? 
please send all feedback to reasonpress at gmail.com. You might even appear on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. To hear more of her music, see the links in our show notes.